Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Hopefully this morning's message, I get the, the first message this morning, and that means I've got to give everybody a bit of a jolt here to wake you all up. You've got the coffee in the back or in your hands. But I trust that the Word will do its work among us this morning and that we will be uh, transformed even as we behold the glory of Christ this morning. Philippians 3, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16 this morning. I'm going to read the passage, then pray, and then we'll jump in to see what the Lord has to teach us this morning. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12, this is God's Word. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. So, Father, even as we look at your word, we ask now that you would give us the mind of Christ, a mind that is submissive to your word, that we might in turn be doers of your word. And so we ask that your, your spirit would even now help us in our weakness, that your spirit would help me to proclaim the word, that we might be encouraged and built up together, even pressing on with our eyes fixed on the prize. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been asked to speak on the topic of the resilience of the Christian. That's the title of the sermon. But what I really wanted to title the sermon, as he said, I'm an Alberta farm boy. What I really wanted to title the sermon was, keep trucking. Keep trucking, right? I can't believe nobody's mentioned that yet. Well, whatever you make of that whole convoy I guess I just broke the, the rule of, of some preachers, as they would say, don't bring politics into the pulpit, right? Not allowed to bring politics into the pulpit. Well, I'm not sure if I necessarily even agree with that, but you can have your way with me later on. Keep trucking. Well, I, I'm reminded, even as I, as I think of that advice, don't bring politics into the pulpit, of some other advice that I've received from, uh, from professors, from teachers. I can't remember if it was in a class or if it was in a book that I read it. But I remember hearing some preacher who was wiser and better at preaching than I was who gave some of the advice to me uh, as if a preacher would ever have an opinion, right, on how to preach. Well, he said to me something to this effect. When you're writing a sermon, when you're crafting a sermon, you need to include a good illustration. But please, whatever you do, don't use Lord of the Rings and don't use a sports illustration. Well... I am going to I'm gonna ignore that advice this morning because I believe that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, actually got it right. He uses a sports illustration. You see that very clearly in the text. Paul, as I said, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's sketching for us a picture of what it looks like to be a resilient runner. 
uh, to be a runner in a race, the race of faith that Christ calls every Christian to run. This image of a runner was no doubt common in that day. People, as Paul talked about this runner, as he, as he presented himself to the Philippian believers as this resilient runner in the race of faith, the Philippians no doubt would have understood what, they were, what, what he was saying. They saw runners, they knew about the Olympic-type games, and so it was a familiar illustration to them. So as I said, I'm going to kind of ignore that little bit of advice, not because I want to be a rebel, but because I actually think that's exactly what Paul is giving to us. He's painting for us a picture of what it means to be a resilient runner in very difficult circumstances. You've got to remember, Paul, as he writes this book, where is he? Well, he's locked up in a prison, right? He's locked up in a prison because he is devoted to preaching the gospel. And so, he is running. He's pressing on, even in the midst of these difficult situations. And you can read the book of Acts if you want to see more about Paul and his life of resiliently pursuing Christ. You can read in the book of Acts all over the ways that Paul was beat down and oppressed. And yet he kept pressing on. And so this morning, Paul's message for us is a very simple message. I love simple messages. I think it's a very simple point that Paul makes for us. He calls us to imitate him in being resilient runners. He calls us to imitate him by pressing on until we are called up. That's his point. We are to press onward until we're called upward by God to receive the prize. And so this morning, we're going to consider four qualities of the resilient runner. Four qualities of the resilient runner that we see in the example of Paul and that we are called to imitate. As you see that even in verse 17, I didn't read it, but he says right after, brothers, join in imitating me. He wants us to be followers who imitate him even in this race. And so these four qualities, what are they first? We need to calculate ourselves correctly. Secondly, we must be gripped by Christ. Third, we must focus on and strain towards the prize. And fourth, we need to press on sharing the mind of Christ. So those are the four main points we'll go through each of those this way. Think of Paul here in this passage. Like the experienced Christian athlete. He's been running for a while. He's been a Christian for a long while now. Following the Lord for many years. And here he is as this, as this experienced runner, as this experienced Christian athlete. Uh, he's experienced in, in this athletic spirituality, if you want to call it. And he's giving us now top-of-the-line coaching, even under the direction of the, of the Holy Spirit. And so he sketches for us a description of how he runs. What does his life look like? He gives us an example to follow. And Paul says, first of all, if we're going to be resilient runners, if we're going to be resilient Christians, we must calculate ourselves correctly. You see that there, that first verse beginning in verse 12. Look with me. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul begins here with a confession of his imperfection. In fact, he makes a deliberate calculation about his lack of perfection. If you look there in verse 13, the first part he says, Brothers, I do not consider, the word there is an accounting term, legizomai. I do not consider, I do not calculate that I have made it my own. What's he talking about? 
Well, he's talking about what, he, what came before this passage. What does he want to make his own? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's straining for Christ's likeness. He's straining for Christ's likeness. And he says, he's taken this spiritual inventory of himself. He's made this calculation. I'm far from perfect. Now we've got to ask ourselves, why did Paul think it was necessary to to state out front, yeah, I, I haven't obtained it. I haven't obtained moral perfection. Why is it? Well, scholars are, are kind of, they, as usual, they have all sorts of opinions on, on why that might be. I think it was likely that Paul was confronting some sort of false teaching that was swirling around, a, a false teaching about moral perfectionism, that a person could perfect themselves morally in the sight of God by their own works, and it was causing all sorts of confusion in the churches. Uh, perhaps this derived from the Jewish leaders, from these different Jewish sects who, who thought that you could be morally perfect based on your lineage and your law-keeping. In fact, that was how Paul used to think. That's how Paul used to think. If you look back in the earlier parts of chapter 3, Paul, Paul says that he had a very high view of his accomplishments according to the flesh. So the things that he did as a man before Christ, he had a very high view of himself. Paul tells us back there in verse 4 that if, if it were a matter of keeping track of who was the most zealous Pharisee, he would have been the number one pick for God's team. He says there in verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But that lineage that he was so proud of and that law-keeping, Paul now says he counts as loss. He formerly counted that as gain. He was pretty confident in himself, wasn't he? But now he counts it as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing, verse 8, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul compares and says, what I formerly trusted in, I now view as dung, as garbage, as trash, something to be flushed down the toilet. It's, it's of no value. But I've gained Christ Perhaps that, though, even as Paul talked about his gaining this status of righteousness, that's what he was talking about there, as he was found in Christ, he gained this status of righteousness, a judicial declaration that he is righteous in God's sight. Perhaps that was causing confusion among the believers, too. Maybe they were thinking, well, well Paul, if you're saying that you've obtained this righteousness, do you mean that you're perfect? And so Paul comes here in verse 12 and says, no, 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 I haven't obtained it. I've obtained a status, but in terms of my experience, I've yet to obtain complete Christ-likeness. 
He, f- he confessed that his experience had yet to catch up to the reality of what he became in Christ when he first renounced those efforts and trusted in Christ alone to save him. So we see that if we are going to press on in the race, if we're going to be resilient Christians, we actually have to begin with a proper assessment of ourselves. We do. We need to take regular spiritual inventories, even like Paul, so that we don't become proud and start to coast. When we do that, we will see very clearly that we have a long ways to go because, well, what's the goal? It's Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what we're striving towards. Complete Christ-likeness. Now, I'm going to assume that the majority of you here this morning, you probably agree with Paul, and if you were approached by someone, you'd say, yeah, of course, like, I confess myself to be a sinner. I'm, I'm assuming that's the majority of you, that you acknowledge that you're, yes, I, I stand declared righteous in Christ. That's my confidence. I have a righteousness not of my own. But yeah, I, I'm not perfect. I've got a long ways to go. But, but what I find with myself, and I've had to think about it even this week, as the Lord's been working on me, is that I actually think we're prone to more subtle strains of perfectionism than we think. We're, we're prone to these kind of subtle perfectionistic strains that rear its head with a quickness to excuse our sins by comparing ourselves with others. We play these games in comparative righteousness. And rather than measuring ourselves against God's word, rather than measuring ourselves against Christ and his perfection, we, we excuse our sins and we begin to tolerate our sins, even as Jerry Bridges has called them. They become respectable sins. Why? Because we compare ourselves with others, don't we? It kind of creates this elitist divide. That's what all sorts of perfectionistic tendencies in the church, any kind of, kind of higher life where you divide the super spiritual and then the less spiritual. And then what you do is you look down your nose at other people. But the problem is, is that we're comparing ourselves with everybody else. We're comparing ourselves like the Pharisee in Luke 18. We can slip back into those old patterns and we, we say, well, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, right? Like extortioners and the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Was the Pharisee wrong in calling those sins? No, they, they were sins. But the issue was that he needed to first deal with his own sin. I think that that would really help us in our days is if we, instead of looking and comparing ourselves with all the sins of everybody else out there, including all the sins in the world, we should think less about the sins of Justin Trudeau and more about our own. Less about the sins of our brothers and sisters and more about our own. You remember what Jesus said? He tells us to go logging, right? Pull that plank out of your own eye. If we're going to run the race, we need to deal with our sins. We need to have this proper assessment of ourselves, a correct calculation that we still have a long ways to go. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, well, we see we, we do have a long ways to go. Because what does Christ call us to? It's not just behavioral modification. Many of you can change your behavior. 
even non-Christians can, through enough determination and grit, change their behavior. But what, what is God aiming for? He's aiming for a changed heart, changed desires, that they would align with Christ. And so we are, we're all in danger, in great danger, myself included, of this comparative righteousness, then where we stare down our nose at others, rather than like Paul saying, no, I, I haven't obtained it. I've got a long ways to go. Paul deals with his own sins first. So are you quicker to point out the sins in society? To point out the sins in your pastors, your friends, your spouse, your church community, than you are to deal with your own sin? We must be very careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't inflate our views of ourselves. Paul confesses his own imperfections because he knows that if he's going to press on, he actually has to deal with his sins. The author of the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, says, let us also lay aside, cast it off, lay aside, get rid of it, every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, Paul's strategy, he's been doing this for a long time. He's been running the race for a long time. And so he says, actually, you need to assess yourself properly in light of God and his word. And you need to cast off those sins. And if you're not assessing yourself properly, you won't know what sins you need to cast off. And they're going to hinder you. See, brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you. If you're a pastor here, I think just a very practical way to encourage your people to grow in this is to change up, or is to possibly, I don't know what your church order of service looks like, but to possibly change up your church order of service. Here at Calvary Grace, every week, and this is what the church in the past has done for hundreds of years, every week we spend five, seven minutes looking at the Word, being confronted by the Word, measuring ourselves against and by the Word, and then we confess our sins to God. I think that's actually a neglected discipline among Christians. I know for me, for instance, when I do my quiet time, my instinct is often to think about how does this issue address, or how does this passage address all the problems out there? When in fact, we should be asking ourselves, what sins do I need to confess? Where is it that, that I lack what Christ has? So brothers and sisters, we need to take a, a good long look at ourselves before looking at everybody else. We need to acknowledge and make a correct calculation. Yes, we are still sinners. And we need grace. Now, I find the interesting thing here is that as we do this, I, I know the tendency for some of you. For some of you, it's, it's that you just, maybe you're kind of not worrying about your sins so much. It's like, I just wanted some behavioral modification. I'm not really worrying about the heart. But then for others, even as I'm talking about this, you're probably just feeling crippled and crushed, right? Like, oh, when I take a look at myself, I just feel miserable. Well, I find it very interesting that Paul, even as he makes this proper assessment of himself, he's not paralyzed. 
He's not paralyzed. Why? Because of everything that he knows is true about him. You've got to remember all the context that we were just reading, right? He knows that he's found in Christ. He's got it all. He's got righteousness. It's a status that he has now and will never be removed. He's confident in that. It didn't paralyze him, but it motivated him to press on. You see that there? He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We see this then is the second quality of the resilient runner. If we're going to be resilient Christians, not only do we have to calculate ourselves correctly, but we must be gripped by Christ. We must be gripped by Christ. What we see here in this part of what Paul is saying is that our ambition to press on to greater spiritual maturity is preceded and is produced from something that happens to us. Something that happens to us. Yes, Paul is pressing on. It's very important. We need to remember this. Nobody can run the race for you, Christian. You're called to press on, to actually get your legs moving to exert some spiritual energy and effort. See, there's no understanding in the Christian life of being passive. The Bible's prescription for the Christian is not let go and let God, as some have said. It's not let go and let God. But as J.A. Packer has said, it's trust God and get going. It's trust God and get going. What does it mean to press on? Well, it's very interesting that he actually uses the same word here as he used back in verse 6 that describes his pre-conversion life, his pre-conversion ambitions even. He says in verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor. That's the same word. A persecutor of the church. Paul the persecutor is now Paul the Christian who's pressing on to be more like Christ. It refers then to this zealous ambition to accomplish something. In the past, he was zealous to destroy the church. And now, he's zealous to follow Christ with singular devotion. Paul is saying, before my conversion, I was a really ambitious runner. I pressed on. I had a lot of ambition, but I was running the wrong race. In fact, what I was doing in the past is I was actually trying to hinder other Christians in the race. But something miraculous happened on that road to Damascus. That time when Christ seized Paul. He gripped him. Which we can read about in Acts chapter 9. That light from heaven and the voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who? Jesus. Christ seized Paul the persecutor and he converted him. He converted him into Paul the man who is now an ambitious athlete pursuing holiness, pursuing conformity to Christ. That word there in the middle of that section, I press on to make it my own because, if you write in your Bible, circle it, underline it, it's critical. Everything hangs on that word because. Paul's got a bit of a play on words here. He says, I'm pursuing to take hold of Christ-like maturity, but I'm doing that because 
Christ has actually taken hold of me. It's the same word. He's gripped me. That's what Christ does when he converts a sinner, is he grips him, he seizes him, he arrests him in the way. So that no longer do they go their own way, no longer do they run that race that leads to hell, but now they are entered into the race of faith and are headed for the prize. That's the order. We press on because Christ has already taken hold of us. It's so critical to get that order right. Yes, we exert effort, but we do so because of something Christ has done for us and now is doing in us. It's not the first time that Paul has urged Christians to press on and rooted this, reality, rooted this activity in the reality of God's prior and persistent work of grace. Look back with me at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, a familiar passage for many of you. How does sanctification work? What does it look like to be a resilient Christian? Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, only, not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, same word, for, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, when Paul says press on and when he invites us to do the same, he's not saying you've got to work yourself towards your salvation. That leads to misery and ruin. He's already confessed that he tried that before and it was all rubbish. He renounced it. He's not working for salvation, but from. That's a major difference. That's a major difference. See, we can think of it, we can think of it this way. It's not like anything in, in the world of sports that we have today. God does not choose runners for his race based on their ability to perform. Some of you here have been professional athletes. Many of you played on competitive sports teams. What do you got to do? You got to make the cut, right? And what's that based on? Well, it's based on your ability to perform. If you're a better athlete than that guy over there, well, you're on the team. But that's not at all this kind of race. That's not the way God operates. What he does is actually just the opposite of the way we think. The way that we think it should be, God says, no, no, no. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. There's no tryouts to get into this race. God, in fact, calls the worst runners to enter the race and pursue the prize. That's what he's done. Many of you know that. He calls the worst runners. He calls those who are running in the opposite direction, who wanted nothing to do with him. And then, like Paul, he seizes you, right? He's got you. And he's not going to let you go. He says, you're mine. Now run. Now run. Press on. See, that's what's the case for every Christian, is that we have been seized. We have been gripped by Christ. And we are owned now by him. He's our Lord. He's our Lord. That's what it's saying. Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has made me his own, his own sheep, even as Pastor Clint reminded us of. 
He's made us his own people. And he has done that by purchasing us by his own blood. He's got you. He'll hold on to you. Nobody can pluck you out of his hand. So press on. That's what he's saying. Press on. I was reminded of of this reality of the gospel even last night as we sang in that final hymn, All I Have is Christ, the verse. But as I ran my hell-bound race, hell-bound race, that's the race we were all running prior to Christ seizing us, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. For every Christian, that is true of you. You are running a hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, and God looked upon us in our helpless state and he's led us to the cross, and he has seized us and made us his own. See, what great hope there is then for us as believers. When Christ seizes you, he seizes you for good. He doesn't seize you based on human merit. He doesn't seize you. He doesn't get you kind of 99% of the way and then the other part's my free will that I choose God. No, no, no. He gets you and he holds you and he keeps you all the way. And that's what's going to spur us on to run. If you don't get that, you're going to wither up. You're going to give up. We're not working for our salvation, but from it. What we see here is this great doctrine known as conversion. Christians believe in conversion. We believe in conversion. We were running one way, Christ grips us, we run another way. That's repentance, that's faith, that's perseverance. The other pastors, Clint and Terry, both referred to deconversion stories. I might as well join in. We don't celebrate deconversion. We celebrate conversion. Like there's so many people out there that want us to join in with them and celebrate, oh, you know, I've deconverted. No, no, no. We celebrate conversion. And there's no such thing as deconversion. If you're converted, you're kept. If you're converted, you're kept. So the question that you must consider then this morning is has Christ gripped you? Has Christ gripped you? Has he led you to forsake your own works? To forsake all those things that you used to count as gain and trust in? And has he now given you a new heart? Is he working at you even in the level of your will? As you remember, he works at you both to will and to work. He's changed our wills. He's got the whole you. When Christ saves a person, there's no concept here of this, well, Jesus saved me at one point, and then maybe at some point later down the road, I get serious. No, no, no. He saves you, he puts you in the race, and he gives you a will to pursue and to press on. One way to see whether you are like Paul pressing on, or, or whether you are like Paul seized or gripped by Christ, is this, to ask yourself, am I pressing on? Perseverance is a mark of true believers. Every converted sinner will press on. Why? Because Christ has taken hold of him. He's taken hold of the heart, and he's transforming you. He supplies new holy ambitions even to press on to make it our own, that is, to become more like him.
Perseverance is not optional for the Christian. Every true Christian will press on to take hold of holiness because Christ has taken hold of them. Will we fail? Yes. Certainly. Will we ever attain perfection this side of the resurrection? No. But we still press on. So if you aren't pressing on and you have no aspiration to do so, you've you got to actually ask yourself before God, has Christ actually gripped me? Has he seized me? Has he arrested my heart, my attention? Does he own me? Resilient runners are gripped by Christ. That's the only way that we're going to run. That's the only way that we're going to keep going in the midst of all the chaos and the opposition, even in the midst of our own sins, which cling so closely, is we know Christ has us, and he's going to keep us. Thirdly, we see here Paul gives us another part of the strategy to being resilient runners. He says, if we're going to run like him, we must imitate him and focus on and strain towards the promised prize. Look with me at verse 13 there. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Actually, in the Greek, it just says one thing. One thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I, th- I find it kind of funny, Paul, he's kind of like a preacher, right? He's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm, I'm winding up my, my sermon, but i got like actually another 20 minutes to go. So if you hear that, if you hear me say that, you probably know there's another 15 or 20 minutes to go. So we're, we're winding up the sermon. Paul says one thing, and then he actually mentions two things. He's like, okay, what are they? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. But it's actually one thing in his mind because it's all part and parcel of the same activity. It's the concept of persevering of persevering with our eyes fixed on the prize. See, runners are not successful. If you've ever run in a race, for some of you it's been a long time since you've run, but if you've ever run in a race, you'll know that if you start looking back, well, not only do you lose your spot, but you're actually at risk of tripping and falling, aren't you? You know, just try, try sprinting and look back and see how long you last. It doesn't usually end up very well for most of us. For, for some maybe who are really coordinated, you can get by with it. But you're going to get tripped up. And Paul says, I'm not looking at the things in the past. I'm, gonna, I'm keeping my eyes on the prize. Now, Paul's not saying it's wrong for Christians to remember the past. Memory is a great gift. And we don't know how great of a gift it is until we see someone we love lose their memory. Paul, in fact, he's just been recounting What Christ has done, right? He just finished recounting that. Christ Jesus had made him his own. He's recounting his own conversion. And so it's a good thing to remember what Christ has done. We're called many times in the scriptures to remember, to recall, to recount all the Lord's dealings with us and his faithfulness towards us. But Paul is saying, I'm not going to focus on my past achievements, whether they be according to the law or even my achievements as a Christian. I'm not focusing on yesterday's victories or even my past failures. But I'm pressing on 
Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, with his classic rhetorical genius, wrote, the, various, the very easiest way to give resurrection to old corruptions is to erect a trophy over their graves. They will once, at once lift up their heads and howl out, We are alive still. Many Christians, they begin to coast because they're satisfied with past progress. We celebrate that as a mark of grace, yes, to be sure. But we're not satisfied. Why? Because we're pressing on to be like Christ and we recognize there's so much further to go. We haven't attained the prize yet. He's not coasting on yesterday's victories, nor is he giving up because of yesterday's failures. That's another tendency among us, isn't it? I failed again. I failed again. I just feel giving up. No, 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 no. Don't be thinking of those things. Keep straining forward with your eyes on the prize. The word that he uses there to describe straining forward is it's only used once here in the New Testament. And it's a really vivid image. It's an image of a of a runner who's who's full out, his, he's bent forward, he's straining all of his muscles and ligaments, everything full out to reach the prize. And so we see again clearly. The Christian life is not a passive life. Resilient Christians keep running. And they give it all that they have. Again, because they've been gripped by Christ. The Puritans like to talk about the Christians having a holy sweat. A holy sweat. Are you sweating? Are you exerting effort? Are you straining forward to pursue Christ-likeness? Now, I mentioned at the beginning, I want to entitle this thing, Keep Trucking. Everybody's got the convoy on their minds, right? Facebook posts. Well, whatever you make of the convoy, what you certainly see in that, and what you see in, in many of the protests, what you see in many people, is that there's no shortage of zeal. There's no shortage of, of pushing forward to something. The question is, what are they pressing forward to? I've got some friends who are actually in the convoy. They're grinding the gears. They're spending long days in the truck. Why? Because they value something that lies at the end of it. They have a goal in mind. But I was thinking this week, imagine. Imagine if all of that zeal, if all of that zeal, and think of it for yourself. Imagine if all of your zeal for your your hobbies, your zeal for your children, your zeal for whatever it might be. Imagine if all of that zeal was channeled with an intensity towards pursuing Christ-likeness. That's the amazing thing, is that Christians, we can get so distracted, right? And Paul says he's got one thing on his mind. He's pressing forward. He's pressing forward to the prize. He's straining. It's not that those other pursuits are necessarily wrong, but ask yourself, what gets my best efforts? What prize do I have my eyes fixed on? Perhaps Paul's use of this image of a runner full out, maybe he even has in mind that last leg of the race. Because it's a marathon, right? You can't be sprinting the whole time. You can't sprint your entire way in a marathon. But the last bit of the marathon, you're running full out to finish. After all, when Paul writes this letter, he is in prison. He even says in Philippians 2, he's not sure if he's going to be poured out as a drink offering. In other words, I'm not sure if I'm going to be killed here for the sake of Christ. I might die soon. 
So in Paul's mind, he's thinking, I'm going hard. The last leg of the race, I'm going to finish well. I'm not giving up. See, this is not your normal Olympic-style competition. It's not a competition here to see if you can gain a better position. That's not the race that we're in. We're not trying to jockey for a position on the podium. Christian, if you make it, that's good. We're striving to finish, and finishing is hard. Finishing well is even harder. So even, even I see those here who are a few years older than me, but none of us knows. None of us knows how long we have. The last leg of the race, what a testimony it is to the fact that Christ has seized a person when they continue running and pressing on and pursuing Christ even to the bitter end. I've seen people die. The dying process is not a nice thing. Christians aren't afraid of death, but the process of dying is not nice. But what a thing to not only live in faith, but to, as the author of Hebrews says, to die in faith. To die in faith. Trusting Christ. Pursuing Him. And what a prize it is. What a prize it is that he has his mind. And he says it's the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think Paul here is referring to the call that all believers will hear shouted from heaven when the race is finished and when Christ returns. The day of resurrection, I think he has in mind here. Because he's just been talking in verse 11 that he wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's his goal. Because when the resurrection happens... He receives the fullness of the prize. It's not even at death. The resurrection, we await the resurrection. The fullness of the prize comes then when we are raised from the dead. It's this upward call that all of the dead in Christ will hear and those who remain on earth will hear when Christ returns. That's what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, and with the shout, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And what's he going to cry out to the dead? What's he going to cry out to those who are in Christ, who are believing in him? Come up. Come home. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the prize that Christ, that Paul has his mind fixed on. The full experience of the promise of promised inheritance. This imperishable inheritance, as Peter calls it, undefiled, kept in heaven, reserved for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. That's so key. It's the call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you in him? You must be. If you want to be win the prize. Do you think much of heaven? Do you think much of heaven? I know I certainly don't enough. I'm so focused on everything else here. Paul, he's got in mind the prize of the upward call, heaven. I was reading a commentator just even this morning. He said this, This singular and passionate focus on the future consummation, which Paul clearly intends as paradigmatic, often gets lost in the church for a whole variety of reasons. In a scientific age, it is something of an embarrassment. In a world 
come of age, only the oppressed think eschatologically for reasons of weakness, we are told. In an affluent age, who needs it? But Paul's voice should not be muffled so quickly and easily. The tragedy that attends the rather thoroughgoing loss of hope in contemporary Western culture is that we are now trying to make the present eternal. Hence, North Americans in particular are the most death-denying culture in the history of the race. How else, pray tell, can anyone explain cosmetic surgery having become a multi-million dollar industry? We're so consumed with preserving things here that we forget about the prize that awaits. Can you imagine? Just spend some time even this week thinking about the prize. That's going to spur you on to run. Imagine what life would be like without sin, sorrow, pain of death. Imagine a world without doctors. Imagine a world without hospitals. Imagine a world without the counselor's office. Imagine a world without prisons, without police, without courts, without pornography, without sex trade. Nothing evil, nothing vile will be there. Imagine a world where you're free of sin. That's the prize. The heavenly prize that awaits us at the finish line. Imagine a world of pure justice. Imagine a world of pure justice. See, one of the things I think many of us are frustrated with is all the injustices that we see out there. Whether it be injustices from the government, injustices in the home, injustices in the workplace, injustice abounds. But Peter tells us that Christ, how did, how did he endure injustice? He set his eyes on the future and he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He had his eyes on the prize, the future. We need to think much more on heaven. It's a precious prize and it's secure for us, as Paul says in Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this. There's a certainty to the Christian faith. A certainty to what we know right now, even that we hope. It's not just a wishful thinking, but it's a certain hope. I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's what we strain towards with all that we have within us. The prize awaits. The victor's crown awaits for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, a prize so glorious is not meant to be kept secret, which is why Paul then turns in these last couple verses to the Philippians, and by extension to you and I, and he says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We see here the fourth quality of a resilient runner is that if we're going to run with resilience, we must press on by having the same mind of Christ. Paul says here that the mature runner is going to think like him. He's speaking here of, of a mindset that the Christian is to have. And it's Paul's mindset, but Paul's mindset isn't something that he created on his own, is it? Paul's not living according to his own dictates. He is one who has the mind of Christ. He's talked about that 
Back in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, yeah, imitate me and think the same way I do in terms of you must press on, look to the prize, don't think that you're perfect, keep going, think that same way. That's how mature Christians think. And that's actually the mind of Christ. See, Paul wants to bring these Philippian believers on to greater maturity. They're called to think like him, and that is to think like Christ. See, Paul himself here is imitating Christ. He's imitating Christ. We imitate Paul, but Paul's imitating Christ, so we are called actually to imitate Christ, to have that same mindset. What was the mind of Christ? Well, we don't have time this morning, but familiar passage back in Philippians 2. It was a mind of humility, of submission to his Father, of obedience to his Father. The Son obeys according to his humanity. His Father, he obeys him even to the point of death. Talk about pressing on and straining forward. The author of the Hebrews says, we are to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, despising the shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. Paul is imitating Christ, who blazed the trail for Paul to follow. Christ is the one who pressed on in obedience to his Father. And we are to share that same mind. Paul says, if you're going to be a mature Christian, you're going to think this way. You're going to be a submissive, obedient, persevering Christian. But even as Paul summons these believers to have the same mind, that is the mind of Christ, it's amazing here that he is a patient partner in the race. He's a patient partner in the race. See, one could wrongly gather from this that all Paul was concerned about was just, just me. I just want to finish the race. I don't care about anybody else. But we see very clearly here, he actually has in mind his fellow believers, his brothers and sisters in the Lord. He wants them to finish the race too. And he's helping them. He's helping them by speaking the truth. But he's also being very patient with them. Look what he says there in verse 15. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. See, Paul does not view immature Christians as weights to be cast off. His sin, yes, that's to be cast off. But the immature Christian, no, no, no. They're not weights to be cast off. They're brothers and sisters to help in the race. That's what he's saying. And so he speaks the word. He calls them to maturity. He's not content with where they are. We shouldn't be content with the immature but he's patient. And he recognizes that only Christ can change hearts. Just like Christ had to grip him, he needs to grip other believers and make things clearer to them over time. Paul's motto then for sanctification is, I'm going to speak the truth and then I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for the Lord to give the growth. He's not frantically running about as though salvation or sanctification of others depends on him. He knows that it doesn't because it doesn't for himself. He knows that the Spirit is the one who through the Word of God will then reveal things more clearly over time. Is your motto when you look to your brothers and sisters and even to their immaturities and you can objectively say, yeah, they're actually not right there. They're not in accord with the truth. 
But, but as your motto, I'm just going to wait and give it a little bit more time. I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to bring them around to, to see these things. See, Paul tolerates immaturity. But don't mistake that for going theologically soft. He does not tolerate deviation from the truth because he says, only let us hold true to what we have atta- uh, attained. He draws the lines of truth. You've got to embrace this. Don't go back. Are you drifting? It's a question for you. Are you drifting? Are you, are you wandering theologically? Paul tolerates immaturity, but he doesn't tolerate people rejecting the truth. And so he wants to, he says, only let us hold true, hold fast to what we have attained. I think this is so practical. This is exactly what I need to hear. I think it's exactly probably what you need to hear. It's exactly what we need to hear in the midst of all the controversies. All the controversies that we're facing right now. And in particular, the challenges of relationships. I don't know about you, but they feel pretty strained right now. Maybe in your family, in your church, between you and your pastors. Very strained relationships, all sorts of controversies. Differing levels of maturity, seeing things from different vantage points. Is it that we would be those who would have the mind of Christ, who would be submissive first to the word ourselves, who would then speak that truth, but then just patiently wait? Wait for the Lord to make it clear to others? That ought to be our trajectory. We deal with our own sins first. We need to be gripped by the love of Christ for us. We focus our eyes on the prize. And then we help our brothers and sisters along in the race. See, the immature or the slower runners are not enemies. They're partners. They're partners in the gospel. That's the theme of Philippians. He wants them to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so as one who's further along in the race, Paul, our example, exhorts them and he exhorts us to follow him, to have this mind of Christ, a mind of Christ for sinners. A mind of Christ for sinners. And then to wait patiently for God to work in them. So brothers and sisters, press on. Onward. Until you're called upward. And let's help one another even as we seek to do this together, as brothers and sisters who have been called into this race, who have been seized by Christ for that very purpose. This is what resilient Christianity looks like. It ends up looking like resilient love, the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you help us even as we strive forward, put strength in every stride, and give grace for every hurdle, that we may run to win the prize, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.